Welcome to Trinity Radio with Dr. Braxton Hunter and Professor Jonathan Pritchett. We got Dr. Braxton Hunter, pretty talented and well-known apologist, shared the stage with the William Lane Craigs to the Mike Laconas to all those guys. Jonathan Pritchett, Dr. Pritchett is here and he is a New Testament guy, does a lot of stuff, a lot of podcasts, a lot of debates, so on and so forth. You can go out of this room tonight and be a Christian apologist. Now, it may not be that you're able to give the answers, but you know, you can be immediately when we're done here tonight, you can be an answer finder for people. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and along with me is... And today, we're discussing eyewitnesses in the Gospels. And because we have made a commitment that we're calling Soterio Band, not to mention certain Calvinist or Arminian or soteriological issues, I have covered my co-host's mouth with a bumper sticker for Steve Gregg's The Narrow Path. Stick around. This is the first word. Greetings from a man. There's been a lot of talk in the culture lately about gender norms, gender roles, gender identity, and the historic subjugation of women by men. Everyone from bloggers to Gillette has weighed in. Are you waiting to hear a right-wing conservative serve as a political provocateur saying all kinds of loud, angry comments that will excite the base and anger the opposition? Well, if so, you've come to the wrong place. My name's not Sean, and I don't rush to attack. In 1999, I was a man dating a woman. That woman was Sarah Waller. And I've been trained by the men and women in my life to think of women as these angelic and mysterious creations who were of such ineffable value that doors should be opened for them, gifts should be brought to them, and songs should be played for them. Basically, all the things I'd done for those weird fairies and statues in Zelda as a teenager. And by the way, those were all women. In short, I was trained to respect and admire women to an incredible degree. Surprisingly, holding doors for women will get you labeled as a passive sexist today, which is weird for a guy from the South. I guess I'm a passive sexist toward men as well, since where I come from, everyone holds the door for everyone. If you don't know what that's like, visit your nearest Cracker Barrel. Back on topic. Women have been subjugated by men throughout history, to be sure. I'm glad people are pointing it out when it happens today and working against it so that every man views women the way my community trained me to view them. But as a father of girls, I'm trying to train them to appreciate men in a different but equal way. That's tough today. I'm glad for the cultural corrective about bad men, but there are good men after all. And I fear that the message that's getting through to this generation of young women is a pendulum swinging too far in the other direction. Men are knuckle-dragging, sexually predatory, unintelligent brutes, uh, and hopefully with enough pink hats and marches, we can turn out a handful of acceptably unmasculine, woke man-boys for you hetero girls. It's sad. I think there are great benefits to the focus on women's rights, but it doesn't have to be to the exclusion of the value of men. And I know that many will say that's not what's happening. Great, maybe I'm wrong. But just remember, there are good men out there. If Princess Zelda were real, she would deserve your respect as God's image bearer. But so would young Link. Our God is a very creative artist, and he has a plan for both genders. And now, today's topic.
so it's here's not heresy. It's come on. No, it's Harris' son. Wow! They gave us nothing but tradition and no argument. All they did was get on this stage, yell real loud, and set a straw man on fire. Okay, now this is I I, I was not impressed. <laughs> I, I've never heard of this gentleman before, but. Welcome back to the main show. And as you can see, Dr. Pritchett has extricated himself from my narrow path bumper sticker prime muzzle. So welcome back to the show, Dr. Pritchett. Oh, it's glad to be back. This is a new season. We're not going to talk about soteriology because of the, what, what did you call it? The, the soterio ban. The soterio ban. But I can still be prime about other things. There's a lot of things to get prime about. And so I'm looking forward to this season. We've got a lot of interesting things coming up. And I really enjoyed your first word, by the way. That was phenomenal. That Thank was you. the best first word or last word oh. that either one of us have had since the show began. You embarrassed me. Uh, yeah, but now we kind of embarrassed ourselves because we set this bar so high with that one that you and I will <laughs> never meet it. But well, I, praise the Lord. You know my theory. Put your best stuff out there and then just dig deeper. So today <laughs> we're going to be talking about uh, eyewitnesses in gospel reliability. So, uh, yep. Dr. Pritchett, wonder if you ever heard something like this. There's a common trope that goes around that says something like, we have no idea who wrote these Gospels? We don't know who the eyewitnesses are. We don't have access to those eyewitnesses. And so we're just believing stuff because somebody somewhere at some point wrote something down, and that's not a good reason to believe things of this nature. Have you ever heard someone say that sort of thing? I have heard two types of people say that sort of thing. Okay. I have heard people say that on the streets. Oh, mm -hmm. we don't know who wrote that stuff. You mm -hmm. know, just, just people you run into that are a little bit you know, have angst against Christianity or whatever. But I've also heard it from scholars who actually know better, and not only know better, but have written differently in their scholarly work as opposed to when they say this kind of thing in front of popular audiences. Enter Bart Ehrman. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if Bart Ehrman would say what I just said, but he does this similar thing. Because with the statement that I just made, uh, the, the point is, if someone says we have no, okay, if someone says we don't know who wrote these Gospels and we don't know who the eyewitnesses, we don't have access to the eyewitnesses. Okay, those two things. We don't know who wrote these. We don't have access to the eyewitnesses. Is that false? Now, obviously, I want to make a distinction between what Dr. Pritchett and myself as Christians who have, for other reasons, a high view of biblical inerrancy and all these kind of things. I'm making a difference between what we believe and what we're talking about when we talk about where the scholarship is on this and where the history is on this. Mm. Uh, with, in terms of scholarship and historiography, is it technically true that we don't know who wrote these and don't have access to the eyewitnesses? Well, the second yes. one is yes, because they're dead. Right, they're dead. <laughs> and we don't know who wrote these if by no you are appealing to some level of certainty, like Cartesian certainty. Yeah. Uh, but it, since I don't see it in front of me, and even yeah. then would I have Cartesian certainty? No. But the but but here's Could the thing. It's being a brain in a vat. <laughs> it's, it's misleading because what the impression that is given is, is we have no idea who wrote these, and we don't know what the eyewitnesses said. And that's the impression that's given, and that is false. Right. And that is patently false. And you get things like this. I'm not saying that that statement comes from Bart Ehrman, although he may have said something like that. But what you do get from Bart Ehrman is a similar maneuver, and the maneuver goes something like this. There are 200 to 400,000 variants or discrepancies or differences between the gospel manuscripts that we have. So there are so many differences that we don't even know how many differences there are. 
Um, is, is that true? Well, yes, technically, there may be 200 to 400,000 variations between manuscripts and translations, but here's the thing. What are they? When you, when you say that, and then you follow that by telling someone there's only 138,000 or whatever words in the New Testament, right. then what you, you've left someone with the impression, you've said true things, but you've left someone with the impression that every possible word in the, in the New Testament or the Bible could have multiple plausible meanings so that we don't have any clue what the New Testament Which actually is said. false. It's completely false. Right. Because... You can just look at the manuscripts and see that... A lot of them are alike. So how can how can those two things be true? That that it's false that every word is just messed up, which is the impression people try to leave, right. and and true that there are that many variants. Yeah, and the reason for that is pretty simple, and it's that when you look at these manuscripts and compare them, yes, sometimes somebody skips a word because there was no spacing, there was not punctuation like we have today, and so because of that, uh, somebody picks up in the place where they thought they left off and, you know, you miss a word or something, or someone wrote Jesus, and then <laughs> a later scribe doesn't feel good about just saying Jesus, so he adds the Lord Jesus or something like that. But it doesn't change the meaning, and it certainly doesn't change any theology, any major theological issues or doctrines. So the point is, people yeah, say these just things. The equivalent of a modern-day typo. Yeah. Just a letter's wrong. Often with the character new. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, pe- people say these things, uh, and it's misleading. Is it true that we have no idea who wrote these uh, to bring it back to this issue that we're discussing today, is it true that we have no idea who wrote these and that we don't know what the eyewitnesses said? Yeah, I mean, you can no, that's it. false. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> false. And and you know what, what's interesting uh, this, to, to to kind of piggyback on that uh, is that when Bart Ehrman says things like that in popular audiences, he knows what the apologists are going to respond with something very similar. But he agrees with you on your response, but yet we have to go through this song and dance every time. So. What's the point? If you, right. if, why does he keep doing it? I think it is a moral issue because it seems like he knows that you, he agrees with your response, but he wants to say it anyway to cast doubt. That is intentional deception. Yeah, and so if I'm that's happy why he's call, doing it, that's call him. I don't care if people think this is unprofessional or not. I'm going to call you out if, you're, if you are doing something for no other reason than to be intentionally deceptive. What you should say is, there. he should say, if he's going to bring it up, there are all these errors, but they don't amount to much. Mm-hmm. But he makes the other person say it, which means he's only doing that to be deceptive and see whether or not anyone can use that same retort that he even agrees with. Right. So if that's a problem, and he, him and others like him, you, it's time to give up that ghost. Knock it off. Yeah. So we're going to talk about some of this stuff. So uh, so who wrote these things? Who wrote the Gospels? Uh, well, I'll tell you. Do we have Cartesian certainty? No. But do we know? Do we have some good reason to think? I think I think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote Matthew, oh, Mark. Luke, how brilliant. And yeah. Amazing. And, and I like what Dr. Elliot says in his New Testament survey class. He says, for, for, for some reason, uh, scholars from 1,800 years and later and forward to the present, seem to think they know better than the ancient church fathers going back to the ones who hung out with these guys. So, right, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a thing that sometimes ideas get popular in scholarly consensus and they don't go away no matter how much uh, admittedly biased confessional people like us have good arguments that they just dismiss simply because they uh, affirm what, by golly, people have affirmed for hundreds of thousands of years, mm-hmm. you know, uh, big deal. Um, 
Now, technically, we need to be clear, because there is no uh, inscription in, in the first line of the author, they are technically classified as formally anonymous. Okay, We don't want to suggest that they're not. Now, formally anonymous just means there is nothing at the beginning that identifies the author. So uh, there's no, hi, I'm Matthew, and I'm going to write a gospel for you, or right. you know, Matthew, a slave of Jesus Christ, you know, whatever, uh, but, but like you find in the epistles. But that also doesn't mean that we can't know who wrote it. So, for example, if I'm sitting here writing you a note, and I, it's, you know, start writing about something that I need you to, you know, you're my gopher, so I tell you to go to the store and get me Tums all the time, or whatever it is I send you to the store for while I'm busy working. So yeah. I write you out a note and hand it to you. I don't say, if I don't initial my name or sign my name or state my name at the beginning, it doesn't mean you don't know who wrote that Right. Uh, what, what and let's say, and let's say, let's let's go with that, okay? Yeah. So let's say that we become famous enough, which is never going to happen, <laughs> that somebody would really like something you wrote like that. Yeah. And so I decide for one of our patrons. By the way, if you'd like to be a patron, uh, as one, uh, you can give monthly to us. You just click up here somewhere, um, and uh, or if you're listening by audio, go to patreon.com or uh, yeah, patreon.com/slash Trinity Radio, and we give you cool stuff occasionally. On there. So, but back to the point. Let's say that I decided to give to one of our patrons uh, that note because they just really wanted something you had written and they could mm -hmm. frame it and put it on their wall and tell their grandkids that's Pritchett Prime. Right. Okay. So let's say they wrote uh, up there and let's even go with the nickname Pritchett Prime. Jonathan Pritchett Prime wrote right. this. Okay. And so then they pass that down because now, kind of like in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, um, <laughs> Trinity Radio has become a huge cultural phenomenon <laughs> that has changed the world. And so as a result, uh, now their great grandkids say this uh, this note was handed down to us by Pritchett Prime. So henceforth, we're going to make copies of this and put at the top of it Jonathan Pritchett Prime right. as the author or as a title for this book. It would be formally not authored, like it wouldn't have a formal authorship claim, but it would still everyone would know. And right. in, and exactly this is kind of what we have with the Gospels because by 200 A.D. Right. The Gospels were, we, we have manuscripts with the names of the Gospels. Right, but in 2157, for example, somebody in that family is going to get challenged. No, that wasn't. He didn't write that. Right, <laughs> right. Know, there's going to be a Bart Ehrman in 2157. Right. He's going to go up to, Prime didn't write that. No way. Yeah. Where, where's his name? His name's not on it. Yeah. You have no idea. You don't, you don't know. You don't know who wrote it. You don't know who witnessed it being written. Right. And you don't know... Uh, the, the line of transmission of how... how yeah. it, and then there's going to be a couple yeah. of other guys come along behind who are mythicists and say, Trinity Radio never existed. <laughs> there was no Jonathan Pritchett. <laughs> the Robert Price of the And you're going to be like, look, we have, we have uh, tra traffic violations. This Braxton Hunter always parked in the wrong spot. We've got all these independent governmental uh, evidence that Braxton there's, Hunter and Jonathan Pritchett existed. There's video. There's video. That, that, <laughs> that Photoshop. Stuff. Back Dr. then, everybody yeah. was going crazy with Photoshop. Right. So it, right. You can do this stuff. Right. So you say, well, think, that's surely they're not saying stuff like yeah, that. No, when yeah, somebody, are. but that's important because when somebody says, well, we don't have a video tape of, mm -hmm. of them composing these things. Mm -hmm. Well, 200 years from now, they're going to say, it doesn't matter that you have videotape. It could have mm -hmm. been doctored. There's always going to be something that someone can say to cast shade on it. Okay, so now here we yeah. go with the Gospels. And by the way, some of this is not published anywhere, but because we're friends with the scholars who are notable in these fields, I've been talking to them recently. Here's what mm -hmm. we know. Uh, 
a slight majority of Scott. Now, I've got to be very precise with my language here. So mm-hmm. everybody just be cool. Uh, but here's what we're saying. And don't over-exaggerate this when you point it out to others. A slight majority of critical scholars believe that someone named Mark, and of those, some of them believe it's John Mark, but, but most of them don't, maybe. But a slight majority believe someone named Mark wrote Mark, and a slight majority believe that he's giving you what he remembers Peter's testimony as. Yes. So he's giving you Peter's eyewitness testimony. So right there off the top, is it true that we have no idea who wrote this and no idea who the eyewitnesses were? No, it is not. But then it goes further. So with Luke, uh, a slight majority of scholars believe, critical scholars believe that someone who was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul and who had access to other uh, disciples of Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Richard Bauckham says the women followers for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, not for sure. Nobody says for sure, but you know what I mean. That that's what he strongly believes. But a slight majority believe a traveling companion of Paul wrote these and had access to other disciples. Now, to me, that sounds like Luke. If it smells like a duck, walks like a duck, right. quacks like a duck, it's a it's a Luke. All right. right. <laughs> but uh, there's a quote for you. Put that on a T-shirt. Um, so then uh, John, the Gospel of John. Everybody loves to trash John, right? John yeah. is way too has all this legendary language and all this kind of stuff comes much later, all that sort of thing. Okay, well, uh, John, a slight majority of scholars believe that some lesser known disciple of Jesus or John uh, of Zebedee, mm-hmm. uh, although the majority of the majority do not believe John Zebedee or won't say that, but a lesser known direct disciple of Jesus wrote this down or someone who is giving you the testimony of a direct disciple of Jesus. So that leaves Matthew. I will happily confess to you that the majority of scholars do not believe that Matthew wrote Matthew. However, why is that? Well, one reason is because of the language. But here's the thing. Papias, who was writing, uh, who was living in Hierapolis, by the way, maybe I can put up an image on the video uh, of uh, Hierapolis, or at least Pamukkale, which is a really cool area mm-hmm. just below Hierapolis. I was there last fall. And yeah. Hierapolis is where Papias was living, and he lived from 60 to on into the second century, and he was in the living memory of, and he was around when some scholars say these things were being written, when yeah. Matthew was being written. Yeah. And he says Matthew wrote something, uh, and that it was translated into other languages. So Papias plausibly is telling us Matthew wrote Matthew. Yeah. So even though the majority of scholars don't think that because of maybe the language issue, Papias says, no, Matthew wrote something that we probably would say is Matthew and that it was translated by others into other languages. So that's a good reason to believe that uh, Mark, Luke, and John are written by those people and giving you eyewitness testimony. And as for Matthew, there's still a good case to be made that Matthew wrote Matthew. Mm-hmm. So is it true? It, let's review again. Is it true that we have no idea who wrote these things? No, it is not. Is it true that, is it technically true, though misleading to say, we don't know who wrote these things? Maybe. Maybe if you mean by that absolute Cartesian certainty. Yeah, I would agree with that. But the, the uh, what you hear a lot is, well, I mean, no, Matthew didn't write it. There's what we call the Matthean community produced the document that we call the Gospel of Matthew. Mm-hmm. The Markan community, yeah. you know, produced the document for their liturgy purposes and everything else. 
so you have these claims by, especially not so much as now as you did, you know, 20 years ago and before with the Jesus Seminar made these, these kinds of claims. Mm -hmm. now, the argument has not moved from communities producing documents to it's mostly a we don't know who produce the documents and that's where the fight is that's right right but, Let, but hold on just, here's a quote yeah. from richard bockham on what you just said richard yeah. bockham uh wrote the book jesus and the eyewitnesses which i would recommend if you want to go further with this and he says quote nowhere in early christian literature do we find traditions attributed to the community as their source or transmitter right more on that in a minute but continue yeah so i mean is the idea that that you know you, you got it, it, you've got the writing room from a network TV show getting together. Right. For, I mean, th this was, now, now, in fairness, there were scribes and teams that would produce copies of documents or whatever, mm -hmm. but by the first century, what you would probably have is a person and an amanuensis. Now, one of the interesting things that performance criticism has brought uh, about, you know, when we, when we talk about documents, you talk about how uh, all the words ran together and, and no punctuation. I think we mentioned that earlier. Now, what performance critics will say is that the reason they would, when they analyze a text, they start color coding word, you know, case endings and all kinds of stuff to see what would aid in memory. Because a lot of times when they say that someone's reading a scroll, we imagine somebody with this very cumbersome thing reading a scroll. Uh, technically, probably not the case. Uh, for a lot of these scrolls, it was just kind of a prop. The, they would memorize it and, mm -hmm. and say it out loud. So what you have is documents that were meant for the ear to begin with. And what you normally have was in a, in a first production would be an amanuensis taking down a dic, you know, something kind of like dictation, um, if not outright dictation, but there would be some polish and everything else that they would go through stages. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, it, document production in the ancient world is complicated but it is not to the point like where he said that these communities sat around like a writing room and invented something out of... Right. You know, right. Right. So. And what you just said does bring up two other important things. So the guy has the scroll there, but it's more of a prop or a yeah. guide. Or Especially a, for yeah. shorter epistles okay. and stuff. But yeah. he, Okay. But that tells us one thing. Number one, it is true what people have often said, what you may have heard your pastor say, yeah. which is that these people were really good at oral repetition and oral history and stuff like that. They, yes. did, they did do a lot of that. Um, but uh, it, it, it's not, that's we need to say more about the oral tradition stuff. Okay, there is a belief that in ancient Palestine and Asia Minor and the, the, that whole world, the Mediterranean world, that people didn't appreciate necessarily stuff being written down as much. They were interested in just passing stuff on orally from a community, like you're saying. First of all, uh, again, the early Christians, as Bauckham says. Uh, I forget what I did with this. Okay. Nowhere in early Christian literature do we find traditions attributed to the community as their source or transmitter, like we just said. Okay. So whatever you want to say about everybody else, not in Christian history. And second, uh, we have Papias saying this, and we have, the, uh, we have some of Papias um, through Eusebius. And here, Papias has not survived, but much of what he yeah. said has survived through Eusebius. Here's what he says at the end of his introduction. For I did not think that information from books would profit me as much as information from a living and surviving voice. Okay, now, here's the thing. There are two things in play when we go to talk about this. There's, I have a question real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there such thing as a Josephus community that scholars are talking about? Probably. <laughs> I don't <laughs> the Plutarch community and the Seneca community. I, there's no need to. 
Yeah, I know, but you notice that all this talk about community document production comes when we're talking about first century biblical documents, but not yeah. necessarily from uh, on benefits from Seneca. For right, you know? that's right. So, so, I mean, it's just kind Why of... Why do they do this here? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, go but, ahead. Um, so, we need to clarify here, oral tradition, which is what most of you are probably used to hearing about in church, yeah. and oral history. So, uh, whenever some authors, in some cases, what they would do is they would they would give you an oral history, and that means that they, they are giving you an account uh, from someone that gave it to them orally, and it's written down as an oral history, and the reason they give you their names, and we're going to talk more about this in a minute, is so that you can go back and check it. That's different than an oral tradition where people are just passing it on like the telephone game, and it gets messed up by the end. Um, we have we, which is like the worst analogy ever, right? And and not just Christians shouldn't use it when they do, but I don't, you know, I've heard that in church, you know, um, even, but that's not what it's like. And then, of course, secular scholars know better than to say that's what it's like. Yeah. So when when Papias talks about, and how did he say it exactly? When he talks about a living, he wanted to hear this from a living and surviving voice. Yeah. He did, he wasn't just saying what some people say that he was saying. Which is, I wanted to hear it from someone giving me an oral tradition. Right. I don't That's believe this paper, so give me you right. know, this parchment, no. so give it to me straight from the, from right. the source. Yeah, he wanted to, he wanted to he wanted to hear it from a living and surviving voice. He wanted to hear it from someone who heard it from someone who's still alive. Yeah. A living and surviving voice. And when you have, and here's where we get into the, in, uh, what, the device that the Gospels use. So once yeah. we discovered that the Gospels are in the form of what we call Greco-Roman biography, we then Most realized that there are all these tradi- there are all these conventions yeah. that Greco-Roman biographers used. Or they didn't historiographers. Write, they didn't write history the way that we write it in the 21st century. They had their own conventions. They had their own methods. They had their own devices. And this makes some church folks a little bit queasy, but it's incredibly helpful. Um, it's incredibly important to know what kind of document you're reading and what conventions were used to produce right. that document. And we still discover new ones right. occasionally. And it's not just the Gospels. We have some yeah. other things like from Plutarch, and we have these other uh, these Sorry, other Greco-Roman biographies yeah. that we can compare. And sometimes those guys will tell you what the conventions are. But sometimes we yeah. discover new ones. For example, Michael Icona uh, discovered one, he thinks, and that is the spotlighting that someone could spotlight yeah. a particular and, and character. Word. Yeah, he discovered something that was a previous convention right. that they didn't necessarily state as a convention. Right, right. right. So, but in some cases they do state. So. Yeah, but it's like in on writing. If you if you read a book about writing, they don't tell you everything there is to know about writing. Mm-hmm. Even though we would like, it's still in the modern day. Right. You know, you're not ever going to get a comprehensive list of what we are doing. It's even trickier with the Old Testament. So. Uh, one of the great things about the New Testament, especially when it comes to the epistles, I know we're talking about the Gospels, the Gospels also contain speeches in them. Mm-hmm. And one of the great things about the New Testament studies is we do have these rhetorical handbooks that tell us how they structured yeah. speeches and stuff. Yeah. What you don't have is something comparable to that, like in the uh, Old Testament, but what you can discover is that the, the prophets, for example, did have oral formulas that they would use uh, to introduce a, a thus saith the Lord kind of statement. Yeah, so you and- find these patterns... And it, it, so, yeah. so what Mike Lacona is doing with what was never said is not like it isn't there because no one in the past said it. It's like saying there were no oral formulas for the prophets, even though we find them repeatedly using these things, and we know that they were trained in prophetic right. guilds. So, say it that so way. let's let's say yeah. we could we do we could do this today. Say I gave you a book and you didn't know what it was, and you were reading through, and every time the person in the in the story, let's say it's a novel, refers to a beautiful woman, he says 
a princess. Okay, now he let let's he doesn't. Okay, th- this isn't a thing that we do. But let's say that we notice that in reading through every time this particular author, or let's say an author from this particular city. All, every time he talks about a beautiful woman, he says a princess. It won't yeah. take us very long to realize that's a literary device that he uses. He has a convention that when he talks about beautiful women, he calls them a princess. Now, that may be sexist or whatever else, but the point is we could discover that, and we do that all the time. In fact, some people write in such a way that you will discover those kind of things. Yeah. So we still discover, but we, like you say, some places we have Greco-Roman biographers who actually... Tell us, tell us what they're doing. Writing bibliography, but tell us back of writing to, historiography and whatever. Yeah, yeah. So to get to the main point here, one of the devices that they use is called, uh, we think, uh, is what Richard Bauckham refers to as the inclusio, and the inclusio is when you reference uh, a name, you give a name, a proper name of a person, uh, either at the before, the beginning, or the ending of a story, or uh, you bookend your 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 biography talking about this person. That's a tip. That's called the inclusio. That's a tip that that person is your eyewitness. Yeah. So for Mark, that's Peter. Uh, Peter's there in, I think, verse 16, Mark 1.16, and then he's there prominently at the end. Oh. That's giving you an impression. And there are other ways we know that that's Peter. That's not the point. But Speaking of Mark, though, yeah. we're sitting here talking about Mark is the eyewitness mm-hmm. for Peter. That's the tradition. Peter's the eyewitness for Mark. I mean, yeah, Peter's yeah. the eyewitness for Mark. That's the tradition. Mm-hmm. But aha! Mm-hmm. Why didn't when, when Jesus uh, walked on water? Mm-hmm. Why didn't he tell the story about Peter since Peter was his guy? Why did he leave that out? Why did Mark leave that out? Right. If, that, that's if, what somebody's going to say. If you're giving you Peter, that's kind of embarrassing to Peter. Exactly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and Mark's trying to preserve right. his eyewitness's honor. Right. That's right. That's a very easy explanation. Whereas yeah, everyone sure. else is like, yeah, he sank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 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 he has an inclusio of. Of Peter that tips you off. See, they didn't have uh, word processing documents where they could footnote their sources like that, <laughs> and their sources didn't have written works that you could point to. So right. one of the ways that some authors sometime did this is they would use this device of an inclusio. John um, yeah. uh, has an inclusio. Uh, John likewise has an inclusio. For him, it's the beloved disciple mm-hmm. or the disciple Jesus loved, though he does, uh, does give nod to the importance of Peter as well. Um, uh, and if you believe that John is the beloved disciple, well, then he's his own inclusio. Right? right. He's giving you his own. And if you believe what testimony, <laughs> uh, if you believe what Ben Witherington believes, or, or has made a case for it's Lazarus. Yeah, which I think is interesting, but hasn't really garnered much support for it. Yeah. But, so yeah. Luke tells you, in as much as this is Luke one one through four, in as much mm-hmm. as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning, which for Luke that means from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, mm-hmm. were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Okay, so he's giving he's saying I, I'm giving you this eyewitness stuff, yeah. um, and and his inclusio is Peter again. Uh, because especially if he's using some of Mark, right. he's giving you Peter. Yeah. But also, probably the women followers of Jesus, they're mentioned as following him from Galilee to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. but they were with him in Galilee. Yeah, they were his patrons. Uh, and that's in 24, 6 through 7. And so... You, women bankrolled Jesus, in case you're curious. Yeah. <laughs> you know. um, so you got Just Luke. like women in church are the ones who are bankrolling the church these days, it seems like. Yeah. But... Thank God for women in the church, or otherwise it'd go broke. So you've got all this stuff. Now, Now here's another thing that we need to say about the, back to the oral tradition versus oral history type stuff. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, sometimes this happens with little lesser-known characters. 
uh, like Jairus, you know, or yeah. something like that. Uh, why are you giving us his name? Yeah. It's not well, like you this major. Book you're bookending a particular section of the word. Yeah, within this, it's not just yeah. the book ending. Within the book, right. you might give us a name, and it and it might seem like odd. Like this seems scatterbrained. Why does he not mention this guy that seemed kind of important? Yeah. But here he mentions the name of this guy. Right. Well, because probably that was his source. That's what the yeah. inclusio does. That's how you tip off. And here's the thing. You want those books written within the living memory of, of the people who are your sources so that people later on who read that document know that was written while those people were still alive so that I know he wasn't making everything up because right. those people he named would have been able to correct it. Yeah. So that's, it's not a sure thing, but it serves as a little uh, uh, way to keep people honest for that. Then after right. later on, you can still use it. Paul does the same thing. Uh, even though he's not giving you Greco-Roman biography, he does the same thing when he says in 1 Corinthians 15 about the 500-plus people and all the other appearances, and he says, some uh, have oh, fallen asleep, but some are still remain. Yeah. 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 He's like saying, all you, if you want to get a quick boat ride over there, check yeah. it out, you can. Talk to him. Yeah, go talk to him. So people will say, yeah, but that doesn't prove it. Well, no, let's grow up a little bit. We're doing actual historical study here. Yeah. We're not looking for this slam-dunk sledge, sledgehammer Thing, but but you do get really powerful stuff when you put all this together, right? You know? And 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 you can affirm it. Uh, I like what how like uh, Mike Lacona puts it, for example. When when you have a certain degree uh, uh, of uh, of a good case or higher certain degree, you you can say it's okay for the historian to say, "I know it," insofar as we can hold it all things provisionally. But yeah, you, but but it's not a big deal to say this is what it is. Right, right. You, know, you can assert it right. uh, if you have a certain degree of certainty or higher. Not Cartesian certainty, but uh, it, it, probable or higher right. is probable. It's okay to say, yeah, we think that uh, Mark wrote Mark's gospel and Peter was the source. Yeah, so now why why is it decades later? I mean, everyone agree. <laughs> there's nothing that everybody agrees on, but for the most part, people agree that Paul wrote his stuff before the gospels mm -hmm. were out there. Um, but here's an interesting thing about that. Why is it? People want to know. Skeptics want to know. Why is it that the Gospels were written decades later? Well, there's a really obvious reason for that if you think about it. Yeah. Because these eyewitnesses are dying off now. Yeah. And we want to shoot. We got to preserve this yeah. so that people know that we wrote this during the living memory of, during the life of and these look people. And look at the, sorry, uh, not just Bart Ehrman, but moderates, uh, Peter wrote Peter, okay, and he wrote Second Peter. Yeah, we could do a whole other show on that. Right, and so you know, and it's not just Paul, but Peter and James. These guys were also busy. And Jude is yeah. an expository sermon based on Second Peter. No, <laughs> Doctor Pritchett and no. I have an internal debate about what was written. Jude first. came first. Second Peter or Jude, Jude came first. Anyway, but who cares? Who cares? But the point is, they were also busy doing stuff. If you read the Book of Acts, you can see that they were busy doing stuff, and then mm -hmm. Luke tells us what they were busy doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, if you, a, a lot of things, as far as the time gap between the event and the time it was recorded, uh, the Gospels in antiquity are actually pretty close yeah. to the events compared yeah. to other documents and the lives yeah. of, you know, that, that other people are documenting. That's right. So, uh, this is a fake problem. Our skeptical scholar friends know it's a fake problem, and once again, they just want to throw it out there. Because Not all of them know, and that's part of the problem. That's why episodes yeah. like this are really important. Yeah. No, and, I'm talking about the academic. Oh, the, the scholar, scholar, the academic, ones, yeah. They know too. Now, what, let's, so let's poke some holes here. Well, first of all, yeah. let me finish explaining. So, so why, is the, why is it, 
Now, here's a couple of interesting things that you probably never noticed as you're reading the Bible. So the Gospels give you who the 12 are Mm -hmm. uh, pretty prominently. Yeah. Okay. Well, Even though some of those characters don't play prominent roles in a particular gospel, right? Uh, You also, so, okay. And then you also have this other little thing going on over here where Paul says something that's kind of weird. He says, they didn't add anything to me. In other words, after I had my conversion experience, went away for three years, didn't talk to anybody. Then I went back to the home office in Jerusalem, right? (laughs) Right. And I wanted to check with these guys, um, talk with Peter, talk, you know, okay. But they didn't add anything to me. Yeah, I already knew everything that they said. We but then he gives you what everyone believes mm-hmm. is a formulaic, uh, you know, confessional statement the from the early church, yeah. the creed of the early church. Uh, well, you know, you might think, well, they added that to him. No, this actually fits perfectly if you understand this. And it's this. The 12 are listed prominently, and the 12 become so important because if those people... Uh, with Judas, whatever. Actually, that's important too. That's <laughs> important too that some of them list Judas and the re, yeah. except not in Acts. But the, the reason that, that that's important is because that means the author was trying to convey to you these were the 12 at the time. We're yeah. giving you the 12. Okay, but here's the thing those 12 are important, not just because, oh, here's the actors in our play, because some of them don't have major roles. The point was these 12 were the Trajans and guarantors of. The tradition. Yeah. That's why this is an oral history and not just an oral tradition. They were the guarantors of it. They were the ones that you wanted to point back to. They were the ones who, while they were alive, could correct any misinformation. And it's not like they could prevent people from going off and writing their own stuff and messing it all yeah, up. People did. But you should go yeah. back and check with, with these Trajans. And so when Paul says, they didn't add anything to me, but here you go, boom, this statement, he's, he's number one, lending authority to them. Yeah. I went to the guarantors of this tradition. Right. I went to these Trajans to make sure that I was to, to show you that I'm giving you what they say is correct. Yeah. So you had this thing. Interestingly, and so any, I already knew it anyway, but now you can be okay with the fact that I, that what I'm saying. <laughs> right, that's, that's right. That's what yeah. he's doing. I got the seal of approval. That's right. You know, and, and here's the thing. Okay, now, so let's poke some holes in this. Let's say we wanted to say, okay, at least with Matthew, mm-hmm. you're, you're saying that Matthew probably wrote Matthew because Papias says so. Well, Papias is a Christian, and we can't rely on a Christian. Mm-hmm. How do we know that Papias isn't just making all this stuff up and making this stuff up about being in the living memory and all these kind of things? How do we know he's not making that up? Okay, first of all, here's how you know. When you are, see this, let me show you first how internet atheists sometimes, and Christians sometimes, who are skeptical, Mm -hmm. do this, and then show you how you do it scholarly. The way they do it is, if a Christian wrote it, we can't trust it, period. Okay? Here's how you do it in the grown-up world. The way you do it is you say, okay, what did they say exactly? Because if they say, Jesus appeared to me in all of his glory, and he told me I was right about X, Y, and Z, and you can't prove it wrong, okay, maybe that happened, yeah. or maybe that was an interpolation. Right. We have to look at the rest of his life. So in Paul's case, that he did believe that God appeared to him that way, right. but he also went, there was interesting things about him being an enemy of the faith and then suddenly not being an enemy, right. all kinds of other things. Okay, but here's the thing. So we can actually, people slag off Josephus, for example, because he says some things that sound too positive about Yes, and go back and check, Jesus. check out our uh, episode on that where we go over Jesus, right. Jesus outside of the New Testament. I forgot that we yeah. did that, yeah. And yeah. why? And what was important, what did we do there? 
we showed that scholars, even yeah. skeptical scholars, look at that and they say, okay, this probably wasn't there because this is a bit over the top and a non-Christian Jew probably wouldn't have said this. Right. In the same way, Papias' story is far too modest for him to be making it up because he doesn't say... Papias was living just a little ways away in Asia Minor from two of Jesus' disciples, Aristius and John the Elder. These were Jesus' lesser-known disciples. Okay, he could have said, I sat under their teaching and I heard this myself. That's not what he says. He says, because Hierapolis was a place where people passed through, he says he got it from people who got it from them. Yes. Okay? If he was making it up, he wouldn't have added the extra step. Yeah. So, so he's probably to, telling you the truth. You have to look at what he says, not yeah. who he says it about anyway, because it, it, right. if it wasn't the Gospel of Matthew and it was the Gospel of Jim Bob, uh, skeptical scholars are going to say, Jim Bob didn't write that Gospel, you right. know, just because Pappy said so. So people get hung. It, it could have been he, anybody, and no matter who you plug in there, somebody's going to, nah, you know, you're going to get right. that no matter what. Right. But however, I, I go back to what Dr. Elliot said. You can't, uh, number one, if you've ever read the great books, if you've ever read the Bible, the people in the antiquity are not stupid people. Right. Uh, and they're not just gullible people who are going to believe everything. Um, they're not going to tolerate uh, pseudopigrapha, and they're not going to tolerate false description. So let's go back to your analogy now. Uh, right, I write the note telling you what to do. You write the note. And, and now we've become a huge cultural phenomenon. Everybody knows Trinity Radio. Uh, or it's, let's say it's growing rapidly over 40 years' time to the point that um, whoever our sitting president is burns down Washington, D.C. and blames it on Trinity Radio fans. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. But, but, but so, so, here's, <laughs> so here's what happens. Okay, so you've written me this. Yes. Um, we gave it to a patron. We gave it to a patron. Passed it down. They passed it down. But in their in the lifetime of them and their children, yeah, okay, that are just being born, mm-hmm. uh, we had this group of guarantors for the tradition, yes, and that is the people that work at Trinity right now, right? Okay, they claim to they they are the guarantors of this of this authorship, right. okay. And so someone this is starting to sound like a cult. <laughs> someone, well, yeah, it's going to sound we'll have like to a, do cult. a cult. Yeah, show okay. the yeah. Radio we've cult. done shows on cults, okay? But the thing is, then this uh, is an analogy, okay? Yeah. So, so then the someone at Trinity, yeah, who's not one of these twelve, right, writes a, a document explaining about this, mm-hmm. and um, or no. No, okay, no, just the 12 is good enough. So we got the 12, mm-hmm. and they serve as the guarantors. And then anytime anyone claims that you didn't write this, mm-hmm. you can say, no, go check with the people at Trinity. They're, they're still alive. Right. Then the people living after all of us have died can notice that this was challenged. This was written in the day and told you who the people to check with were so that it's not a slam dunk, but it's good evidence that this is probably true right. because this was... This was done in the presence of the people who wouldn't know. Yeah. And if it is the case that it's all fabrication, and the 12 here at Trinity, first of all, none of them are going to say this if it's not true because it's crazy. Yeah, there's not but, enough money. Uh, okay. <laughs> and, and, and they're all willing to die for the yeah. claims or, right. uh, the, or the, of something that Pritchett says in this thing. Okay, now you, you're starting to get a bigger case. And so, you know, bottom line, let's summarize what we've said on this episode. All right. right. Here, let's summarize. First of all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... We have no idea who wrote these. False. We don't have Cartesian certainty about who wrote these. True. 
Okay. Uh, we have no. But you idea don't have Cartesian certainty that, that you exist. Right. <laughs> Do we have for depending? Okay. Uh, presuppositionalists are going to write us now. But okay. Uh, so <laughs> we we have we have. That's not a, that's not a violation of soteriology. No, I hear you. Okay, I'm talking about apologetic methodology. That's right. Okay, so anyway, uh, so 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 Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We don't have any idea who the eyewitnesses are or what they said. False. Uh, we can't speak today with living eyewitnesses. True, but trivially true. Right. right. Okay. So uh, then, second, how do we know uh, who these eyewitnesses were? Because we have good reason to believe that Greco-Roman biographers used a literary device called the inclusio to mm-hmm. let you know who their eyewitnesses were. Mm-hmm. And 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 if, even if that does not exist as a convention, they did name them, <laughs> and those people were alive. Yeah. You know, okay, so so that literary still device. still be checked. Yeah. Yeah. We have a group of guarantors and tradents for the tradition, and that is likely the 12. Yeah. We have evidence of that from Paul's writings that he thought of them that way. We have Papias writing toward the end or toward the beginning, living at the end in the beginning of the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. And Papias tells you that Matthew wrote something that was translated into multiple languages, and so that's plausibly Matthew or at least part of Matthew. Um, And we have uh, this all happening in the living memory of these people, and we have from Papias that at least Aristius and John the Elder were alive... Uh, in the beginning of the second century, and were disciples of Jesus, or living toward the end of the second, into the first century, when Papias was saying this, right. right down the street from him, and he's probably not lying about it because he doesn't say he went and talked to them. He says people came to him. Yes. So, do we have good reason to believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Yes. And do we have good reason to believe we know what these eyewitnesses said and who they were? Yeah. Okay. So, chill out, everybody. Yeah. Gospel eyewitnesses. For more on this, we recommend, number one, that you check out our our uh, podcast, G- uh, Jesus Outside the Bible, because it's in the same vein and kind of fun like this. Yep. And we also recommend that you check out the book, uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by, by Richard, Richard Bauckham. And you, it, ju- it just came out with a new version of it, so you can have fun with that. Speaking of things to check out, we have a podcast consortium called the Trinity Commission, and we have uh, some... Shows on there, uh, in addition to Trinity Radio, Soteriology 101 with Leighton Flowers, The Narrow Path with Steve Gregg, and The Bible Rowdown with uh, Billy Winland and Matt Chisholm. And by the way, it looks like uh, there's going to be some big news about the Trinity Commission coming soon. We're going to maybe be adding some more programming. So uh, As many as three. Yeah. New. Good Trinitarian so, number yeah. there. So be sure and stick around for that news uh, whenever it happens. And become, talk to us about furthering your studies at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary at trinitysem.edu, trinitysem.edu. Visit us there. Uh, Fill out a little form on the side of the screen. Do that if you think you even ever might be interested. Just go fill out that form. That way you can get all the information, and, uh, and, and that'd really be great. We'd look forward to you doing that. And finally, become a patron if you're not a patron. We want to talk about real briefly about what your patron money is doing. It is buying our lunch, it is buying our dinner, it is fueling our... No, it's doing none of those things. Uh, the occasional lunch. But actually, we want to do, give a special thank you to our patrons uh, for your uh, financial contributions actually uh, did 
put gas on our car and food in our belly as we made our way to uh, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which we had a wonderful time. And we just want you to know that Matt Mosaicus. You know, you don't get paid for those things and compensated unless you show up. So they don't mail you the check so you can put gas in the car. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's right. So uh, we were able, because of our patron supporters, we're able to go and, and do those things. Uh, but fantastic church, yeah. Mount Zion Christian Church. Oh, they, what a wonderful event, uh, Wonderful too. people. They really yeah. took care of us in every way. Yes. And, Pastor um, Dave, Pastor Steve, Pastor Matt. Yeah, they were fantastic. Anyway, so think about becoming a patron to be part of what we're doing at Trinity Radio. and Patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. And you get goodies. Radio. I can't remember what the goodies are off the top of my head, but yeah, you, you get do stuff. get goodies. You yeah, get stuff. Yeah. And stick around for the last word. Thanks for being here on Trinity Radio. This is the last word. Of study and sports ball. Sports ball is the label that my colleague and co-host Braxton Hunter gives to every kind of sporting game. He's not typically a fan, and to be quite honest, I'm not a fan of much of it. I am a fan of some of it, namely SEC football, but I'm not a fan of everything else that looks like flag football that everyone else calls college football. Uh, in the rest of the country. But I do have an affinity for the athleticism and and the talent behind playing professional sports, amateur sports, any kind of sports, because I have none. So one of the things that I've noticed lately, however, is that when people are fans of sports, they'll decorate a room with uh, large sofa chairs and sports memorabilia and other things like that, And people have now memed that and said, we need to ditch the man caves and bring back the study, as if people who like sports don't like to read. Now, I love to read. Everyone knows that I'm a bibliophile, but I also do enjoy a good Southeastern Conference football game as well. And I've noticed that in these pictures of the study, what they remind me of is touch-me-not rooms. They remind me of no-kids-allowed rooms. And there's something about that that strikes me as boring and a little bit wicked for a family home. In any case, there is no dichotomy between studying and reading and enlightening your mind with all sorts of wonderful literature and watching guys knock the crap out of each other over a ball. So, there is no choice here to be made. You can have both. And you can have bookshelves lining the walls next to posters of your favorite quarterback or posters of your favorite team or posters of your favorite movie. The big screen and the bookcase do not have to be opposed to one another. So I say we don't have to ditch the man cave and we don't have to bring back the study. We can have both. If you would like more content, click here. And keep watching Bible studies, click up here. And finally, we want you to subscribe. We need more subscribers, so click here.